0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Voices from the Desert, New Year's Resolutions from Our Monastic Mothers and Fathers. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 4, 2009. Last month I called Palo Alto's Friends of the Library to help me purge my bookshelves. They hauled away thirty-two cartons, one thousand two books if I counted correctly. What was interesting was not the books that I gave away, but the ones that I kept. When I looked at the few books that I kept, I noticed that a large percentage of them came from the desert monastics of the fourth century. About ten years ago, I started reading the early monastics who fled the corruption of church and society to seek Jesus in the solitude of the Egyptian desert. Especially formative for me was the Philokalia, considered by Eastern Orthodox believers to be second in importance only to the Bible. I also enjoyed contemporary overviews of these eccentric saints. The book Where God Happens, 2005, by Archbishop of Canterbury. Rowan Williams, in another book called In the Heart of the Desert, The Spirituality of the Desert Fathers and Mothers, 2003, by John Krasovkas, professor of theology and former dean at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology. Like John the Baptist in the Gospel for this week in John chapter 1, these voices crying in the wilderness witness to the central message of Jesus in powerful ways. I love the monastics for several reasons. Jesus fled to Egypt as a baby and in Luke's Gospel our first glimpse of him as an adult was when the Holy Spirit drove him into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Second, these desert dwellers were practitioners of healing, not abstract theoreticians. They sought personal transformation, not theological information. Third, the desert monastics strike us as anachronistic oddballs today, and certainly no one would accuse them of being well-adjusted to society, either then or now. But we misunderstand them if we construe their bizarre lifestyles as spirituality of superficial techniques. What they modeled and what we should emulate is a transformation of the interior geography of the heart, whatever your exterior circumstances. For them, the desert was a specific place. But for us today, it can also be a spiritual way. Fourth, I honor the desert mothers and fathers because I want to place myself in the mix of saints who have gone before me. Tradition, said G.K. Chesterton, means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It's the democracy of the dead. Tradition, says Chesterton, refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. And finally, I love the desert monastics most of all for their profound humanity. These saints modeled what Chrysavgis calls a spirituality of imperfection, in which a Christian is not ashamed or embarrassed to embrace and affirm one's brokenness, wounds, darkness, and inner demons. These monastics acknowledged intense struggles as a necessar- necessary virtue. Praying with Seraphon of Thumius in the fourth century, Lord, we entreat you, make us fully alive. And with that introduction, here are twelve nuggets of wisdom that I've gleaned from the sayings of the desert monastics. I'll resist commenting upon them, You can personalize them for your own journey. Number one, never stop starting over. Abba Pullman said regarding Abba Prynne that every day he made a new beginning. My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. Arsenios, the 5th century. Number two, live intentionally, not aimlessly. From St. Mark the Ascetic in the 5th century, think nothing and do nothing without a purpose directed to God, for to journey without direction is wasted effort. Number three, never ever despair, no matter what from Saint Macarius of Egypt in the fifth century, let us eagerly draw near to Christ and let us not despair of our salvation. For it's a trick of the devil to lead us to despair by reminding us of our past sins. And then from Saint John of Carpathos, when someone is defeated after offering stiff resistance, he should not give up in despair. Let him take heart, encouraged by God's word, that he raises up all who are bowed down. Do all in your power not to fail, for the strong athlete should not fall. But if you do fall, get up again at once and continue the contest. Even if you fall a thousand times, rise up again each time. Number four. Pray simply, not stupidly. From Avagrius the Solitary in the 4th century. Often when I have prayed, I have asked for what I thought was good, and persisted in my petition, stupidly importuning the will of God, and not leaving it to him to arrange things as he knows is best for me. But when I have obtained what I asked for, I have been very sorry that I did not ask for the will of God to be done because the thing turned out not to be as I had thought. Similarly, Abba Macarius it is enough to say Lord as you will and as you know have mercy and if the conflict grows more fierce say Lord help. (coughs) Number five Renounce all self-justification. According to John the Dwarf, we have put aside the easy burden, which is self-accusation, and weighed ourselves down with the heavy one, self-justification. Number six, stop judging others. The monk, says Moses, must never judge his neighbor at all in any way whatever. They said of Abba Macarius that just as God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would cover the faults he saw, as though he did not see them, and those he heard, as though he did not hear them. Number seven, stay where you are. Mother Sincletica from the 4th century wrote, If you find yourself in a monastery, do not go to another place, for that will harm you a great deal. Just as the bird who abandons the egg she was sitting on prevents them from hatching, so the monk or the nun grows cold, and their faith dies when they go from one place to another. In Cetus, a brother went to Moses to ask for his advice. He said to him, Go and sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Number 8. Celebrate Theological Modesty From Peter Damascus of the 12th century, St. John Chrysostom says that we do not know wholly even what is given in part. We know only a part of a part. Number 9. Acknowledge my brokenness. From St. Maximus the Confessor in the 7th century. The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power. Such a person never belittles anyone. He knows that God is like a good and loving physician who heals with individual treatment, each of those who are trying to make progress. A brother said to Abba Theodore, Speak a word to me, for I am perishing. Sorrowfully, the old man said, I myself am in danger. What could I possibly say to you? Number ten, be ruthlessly realistic from Saint Macarius of Egypt in the fifth century. Saint Anthony said to Pullman, Expect trials and temptations until your last breath. I am convinced that not even the Apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, The advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. Number 11. Always think good of everyone. From Evagrius the Solitary in the 4th century, show the greatest gentleness toward all people. And finally, number 12. Read the obituaries. From St. Gregory of Sinai in the 13th century. When the death of Arsenius drew near, the brothers saw him weeping and asked, Truly, Father, are you afraid? Indeed, he answered them, the fear which is mine this hour has been with me ever since I became a monk. At the moment of our death, we will all know for certain what is the outcome of our life. And for further reflection, I offer the two aphorisms that John Krasavgis uses to introduce the overall message of the desert monastics. From W.H. Auden's In Memory of W.B. Yeats, In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. And from the Septuagint version of Isaiah 35.8, The road of cleansing goes through that desert. It shall be named The Way of Holiness. And finally, two books first Sister Benedicta Ward, The Sayings of the Desert Father Fathers, and secondly John Cassian from the fifth century Conferences of the Fathers. <clears throat> For books this week I review Anne Rice. Called out of darkness a spiritual confession New York Knopf 2008 245 pages The publication of Anne Rice's memoir coincides with the 10th anniversary of her return to faith in the Catholic Church back on December 6, 1998 Rice, who was born in 1941, has 25 novels of fantasy, vampires, witches, and the occult, not to mention homoeroticism and sadomasochism. She sold upwards of 100 million books. So many of her fans were stunned to read a Newsweek article in 2005 in which she vowed that henceforth she would, quote, write only for the Lord ready to do violence to my career, I consecrated myself and my work to Christ. She's made good on her promise, too, having published two books of a trilogy about Jesus. In 2005, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt. And then in 2008, Christ Christ the Lord, The Road to Cana. Some die-hard fans have wondered if Anne Rice will ever return to the books that made her famous and famously wealthy. In May 2008, she posted an unequivocal five-minute response on YouTube, No, Never Again. <coughs> the first half of Rice's Called Out of Darkness describes her childhood in New Orleans, where she grew up in a third-generation Irish Catholic family. Her father went to seminary, but never became a priest. Two aunts were nuns. Until age 17, Rice went to daily Mass and weekly confession. She never met anyone who was not Catholic, or any blacks for that matter. Rice says that she has the deepest respect for the nuns and parish priests who shaped her world, a world that she describes as, quote, interesting vast and immensely satisfying." Her college years at Texas Women's University, and then San Francisco State, also revealed her upbringing to be tragically insular, and so her faith cracked apart when it encountered the modern world. She quit the Catholic Church and quit the Christian faith in God for 38 years, until her return in 1998. Many parts of Rice's story are inherently interesting, but left unexamined. She struggled learning to read. Her mother died of alcoholism at the age of 48, the summer after Rice finished the ninth grade. Her daughter Michelle died of leukemia at age six, and her husband of 41 years, Stan Rice, an ardent atheist by the way, died of a brain tumor in 2002. Rice was not in fact radicalized living in San Francisco and Berkeley during the 60s and 70s. She describes herself as a square that was uninvolved and unaware of the political and cultural turmoil of those days. Gender confusion, so prominent in her early 25 novels, can plague her childhood and her son, Christopher, born in 1978, is gay. Rice made millions, as is what she describes on page 128 as, quote, a nationally famous pornographer, end quote. But she says that she has, quote, no guilt whatsoever for anything I ever wrote, end quote. And again, she says she, quote, fell prey to long periods of depression and morbidity, which seemed as much a part of my personality as type 1 diabetes was a part of my physical life. Quote. Her publishing empire employs 49 people. But as I say, all of these many interesting aspects of her life are left largely unexamined. This is a story with a happy ending for a woman who has lived, quote, an unusual public and private life, end quote. In her introduction on page four, Anne Rice writes, quote, I've found the transcendent God both intellectually and emotionally. In complete belief in him, In devotion to him, no matter how interwoven with occasional fear and constant personal failure and imperfection, has become the true story of my life. Anne Rice called out of darkness a spiritual confession from the year 2008. (laughs) For film this week... I review a remarkable movie, Synecdoche, New York, from 2008. The question for this complex and very weird film is whether writer-director Charlie Kaufman's artistic ambition will ultimately frustrate viewer patience. When I saw the film, a couple in front of me walked out halfway through. You will probably love or hate this film. Reviews have been sharply divided. Philip Seymour Hoffman stars as Caden Cotard, a theater director mild in all the midlife crises, both real and imagined, of body, mind, and spirit. The film begins conventionally enough, or so it seems. But if you watch carefully, there are telltale signs early on that Kaufman is going to play with reality itself. A cartoon on the family TV features Caden as a character, and a realtor walks a client through a house that is permanently on fire. Those are two ominous metaphors. The giveaway is that Caden's last name, Cotard, bears a striking resemblance to that of the French postmodernist Jean-Francois Lyotard, We shouldn't be surprised, then, when Caden quits his career doing theater among what he calls the Blue Hairs in suburban Schenectady, New York, where his latest production was Death of a Salesman. And with the help of a MacArthur Genius Grant, a cruel irony given the circumstances, he moves to a cavernous warehouse in New York City and recreates his confused life through what eventually becomes a cast of hundreds of characters. Yes, life is a stage, and we are the actors. In his book, The Postmodern Condition, 1979, Lyotard made famous the notion of incredulity toward metanarrative, a fancy way of saying that there are no truly universal or absolute fixed meanings or truths in life, and that all meaning is a personal or social construction. This is exactly what Caden tries to do. He tries to create meaning in his life through characters who portray his life. He keeps changing the name of the play, one of which is simulacrum, that is, an insubstantial semblance of something. He keeps saying that he quote-unquote finally knows how he wants to direct the play. Indeed, the play is never finished, but is instead a building project that piles floor upon floor of monster sets. It never ends. For Kaufman, there's a very thin line between authenticity and absurdity, genuine reality and mere representation, fact and fiction, living life and playing roles, healthy self-awareness, and oppressive self-consciousness in between true life and certain death. Does Caden Cotard's effort to manufacture even the barest micro-meaning make any sense? The last line of the movie offers a glimmer of hope. Maybe. Synecdoche, New York, from 2008. And for Epiphany this week, we've published a prayer by Walter Brueggemann. For over 30 years, Walter Brueggemann has combined the best of critical scholarship with love for the local church and service to the kingdom of God. He's now a professor emeritus of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. He's authored over 70 books. This prayer, entitled, Epiphany, is taken from his book, Prayers for a Privileged People, Nashville, Abington, 2008, page 163. Walter Brueggemann, An Epiphany Prayer On Epiphany Day, we are still the people walking. We are still people in the dark, and the darkness looms large around us. Beset as we are by fear, anxiety, brutality, violence, loss, a dozen alienations that we cannot manage. We are, or we could be, people of your light. So we pray for the light of your glorious presence as we wait for your appearing, We pray for the light of your wondrous grace as we exhaust our coping capacity. We pray for your gift of newness that will override our weariness. We pray that we may see and know and hear and trust in your good rule. That we may have energy, courage, and freedom to enact your rule through the demands of this day. We submit our day to you and to your rule, with deep joy and high hope." Walter Brueggemann, A Prayer for Epiphany Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 4th, 2009. Happy New Year! I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.